0: Sometimes it's helpful to hear the perspective of someone who's a little further down the road. You know, someone who's been there and done that. Not too long ago, Barbara Rainey played that role in the lives of some younger moms.
1: What was the best thing you did when your children were fighting? How do you deal with the issue of you have your children apologize for things they've done, But their heart is not sorry. They're not repentant. Do you make them... How do you balance making your husband feel respected when you need to be his wife first rather than mother? Did y'all have an established family night?
0: Welcome to Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience God in your home. Thanks for listening. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to young Pastor Titus, he gave instructions for how different groups within the church should act toward one another. Among other things, he directed older women to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. It's an organic, life-on-life kind of counseling. And that is something Barbara Rainey had a chance to do recently. Barbara is a wife, the mother of six, and the grandmother of more than two dozen. So she has some practical experience. Let's listen as she coaches younger moms and wives in this Q&A session.
1: How do you balance um, making your husband feel respected when you need to be his wife first, rather than mother? You've got to be his wife. How, how did you balance that in your life? Well, I don't know that I always balanced it real well because there were so many times when he came home and I just was ready to, you know, here's everybody, take it. My daughter-in-law told me last week that she was just up to her ears and sinking. And she called my son and said, when you walk in the door, she went, you know, I'm walking out the door. And I don't know when I'll be back. Maybe 9 o'clock, maybe 10, maybe 10.30, but I'm out of here. And when he walked in the door, she left. And I was so proud of her for doing that because it never occurred to me to ever do that because I always felt this sense of responsibility that was too much. One of the things that, that I really tried hard to do was to keep Dennis my priority. And it didn't always work because the kids just have a way of demanding and getting in there But I tried to consciously keep that as a priority and to remind myself that he was my first priority and the kids were my second priority, just so that I had it in my head. But I I tried to make that a priority and tried to pace myself so that I did have something left over in the evenings when he came home. And I wasn't always successful, and there were times when Dennis would say, I just really feel like I've been getting the leftovers for the last few weeks. And I'd go, okay, that's a good wake-up call, and... I'm glad you told me." And so I kind of would pull back, and I'd look at my life, and I'd try to figure out how I could get extra naps, or how I could let some things go, or how I could stay home more, or whatever it took, so that, you know, schedule an extra date night, or whatever, so that I could give him attention and not have him feel like he was getting leftovers. One of the things we did when our kids were little, when we, we couldn't afford to get babysitters, and it was hard to get babysitters for four or five kids and even six. I mean, who wants to babysit six kids? I mean, gosh. But um, one of the things we did to get um, to get time away by ourselves is we would fix dinner at home, and we'd put the kids in another room, and I guess they watched videos. I don't know what they did, or they played games or whatever, and they had a timer, and You know, Ashley was in charge because she was the oldest, and at a certain time, they all had to go to bed, and they were instructed not to bother us, not to interrupt us. And if they bothered us, interrupted us, they would get in big trouble. And we did that off and on for several years because it was such a hassle for me to get babysitters. What was the best thing you did um, when your children were fighting? Can you remember something proactive or positive that you did? When they were arguing with each other. Well, honestly, that was the most difficult issue for me in raising kids. I handled doing chores and, you know, all the other things so much better than I did the sibling rivalry thing. That was the thing that was the most difficult for me. It was the thing that upset me the most. Um, It was the area where I felt the most out of control because I felt like I had to be a police detective, to try to figure out what the truth really was. It was so difficult to get to the bottom of it. And oftentimes I felt like I didn't get to the bottom of it. So I've heard since several different things that other people have done. In fact, one of the books that, that I read is this one, Don't Make Me Count to Three. Her philosophy is, is that when there's sibling rivalry, both of them are probably at fault. And both of them have probably made mistakes. One of them may have actually started it. We had our two boys, got into more fights, we were afraid that they would probably both be in jail by the time they were adults, <laughs> because they fought all the time. And the younger one knew how to egg the older one on. But the older one, because he was older and he was always bigger and stronger, he would retaliate and he would always hurt the younger one. And then the younger one would cry. And so, you know, it was, it was always so difficult to know how. And so sometimes we disciplined both. Sometimes we gave them both jobs to do. If I felt like and this is one of those places where I think I made lots of mistakes. If I felt like one of them was really more at fault than the other one, then I would discipline the one and not the other. I like her idea though that both of them probably in most cases probably nine times out of ten, they're both at fault. They both have heart issues of being angry or jealous or resentful or whatever. Did you always address it or were there times when you said you know what you take it you work it out you get it under control uh-huh. and then come out and I'll be willing to listen to what you've done or you know what you've yeah. got the conclusion you came to yeah we did both as they got older and we really felt like they understood the principles of conflict resolution you know we talked to him about you know and sometimes it wasn't really as big a deal as it appeared to be they were really just having fun and it just got out of hand. So, yeah, we we did some of both. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work to have them resolve it. Sometimes they didn't resolve it because they didn't want to resolve it. That's what I liked about her book. She talked about the heart attitude and that really the source of conflict really is our heart attitude and what's going on within. And training your kids to understand that what's in the heart is what, really what is driving the conflict. Sometimes you have to discipline for it if they lie or they hit or whatever, wherever you've drawn your boundaries on discipline, but sometimes it's just a training issue. She has part of that, I don't
0: know if it's part of that book, but another resource is she has this calendar, um, but in this calendar, she addresses the issues, sibling rivalry, you know, Mm -hmm. lying or whatever, and she has the wrong attitude with the right attitude with the scripture verse, and Mm -hmm. so whatever your kids are dealing with, sibling rivalry, you just go to this calendar and you say, "Okay, what am I supposed to say to him?" <laughs> you know, and it's—I'd like to say I use it, you know, all the time, but it's hanging on my refrigerator. Um, but anyway, stuff like that, those kind of things are helpful, as you
1: know. Yeah, it's a good resource because in the in the thick of things, that it is difficult. We made a list one time of all the different options that I had available to me for discipline and taped it on the cabinet because you get so frustrated in the middle of it that you can't think straight sometimes. And I needed to be able to look at something that could say, okay, I can try this, you know, because I I just would lose perspective and, and couldn't think real well, so. Kind of related to that is how do you deal with the issue of you have your children apologize for things they've done, but you don't feel like... And this might be particular children, they're ever really <laughs> sorry. Their heart is not sorry. They're not <laughs> repentant. And you just feel like you don't get to their hearts. They're just saying, I'm sorry because you made me say it. But you haven't really got to their hearts. How do you, do you make them keep apologizing? Or how do you deal with that? I don't think you make them keep apologizing because you can't change their heart. I mean, our hearts, we have to decide to submit. So when they got into a fight or an argument with a sibling, they had to say, I'm sorry, I, and name the sin or name the offense, whatever it is. Will you forgive me for? Name it. And they have to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the other person has to say yes or no. And we had some that would just kind of blow it off and try to sneak by and not not go through that. And we had plenty of times when they, you just looked at them and you go, yeah, you meant that like a hole in the head. I mean, you know they don't mean it. (laughs) But... You know, you you just make them do it and hoping that as they become adults that it will sink in and they will want to choose to do it. I was flipping through a bunch of old notes before I came, and um, I ran across this little thing on a sermon outline from a few years ago where the pastor said, there are three reasons people obey. One is because we have to, because we have parents making us do it, or we have the law telling us we have to drive a certain speed limit. Um, The second reason we obey is because there's some reward tied to it. So if I obey the law and I fill out my income tax, then I'm going to get a refund. There's something tied to it that's going to be beneficial to me. So we do it for that reason. And then the third reason people obey, which is the the hardest and the least often, is because out of a genuine heart of wanting to please God. And our kids are no different. Our kids obey probably 90% of the time because they know if they don't, they're going to get in trouble. But that's human nature. And one of the things that we did, we prayed a lot for our kids that they would get caught and they would not get away with anything. And I remember um, how clearly God answered those prayers many times. One of ours was prone to stealing just little things from siblings, but we didn't want him getting away with it. And it was just amazing how God allowed him to get caught. We had another one who was, as a teenager, was lifting some money, and we didn't know it. you know. And kids do that. You don't take a quarter out of mom's purse, and they think it's no big deal because it's just a quarter. Well, it was amazing, again, how we found out about this one. And then as our kids started driving, we had a, a neighbor who was driving down the road, and our kid went flying down the road way too fast, and he got on the phone and called us. And I was thrilled that he called and told us. So we prayed that a lot, that God would Um, not allow our kids to get away with anything. We wanted them to be caught. And then the other thing we prayed is we prayed that they would repent and that God would give them a heart that wanted to obey Him sincerely and faithfully because only God can put that in their hearts. So we prayed a lot for their hearts that they would want to please God and obey Him on their own. So I, I think prayer is a real key element in parenting because you can only do so much And then they've got to decide they want it. One of my other frequent prayers for two of my kids in particular, my prayer for them was that they would know they were sinners and that they needed Jesus. And I prayed that a lot. I prayed it a lot for my youngest one and my oldest one, because my oldest one was a typical firstborn who wanted to make everybody happy, and she was pretty good, and she loved her siblings. And my second one was the one who knew how to push my buttons pretty much better than any of the rest of my kids. And he started doing it at five and didn't quit until he was 18 or maybe 17. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say he was 17. (laughs) I really think he had it as his mission in life to get the best of me. And he won more times than I won. And um, my oldest daughter saw that. And she saw what he was doing to me, and she saw that he was making me miserable, and that he was pushing my buttons and making life hard. And she didn't want life hard to be hard for me. And so she kind of went out of her way to make me happy. I watched her, and I thought, I do not want her growing up thinking that she needs to make her mother happy. That is dangerous. It's unhealthy. And I just began to pray that God would— help her see that she was just as much of a sinner as her brother. Just because she acted good on the outside did not mean she had a clean heart. And so I prayed that a lot for her. I also prayed it a lot for my youngest because my youngest was, she got a little bit better treatment than some of the older ones too. And my older ones told me about it. Mom, you're <laughs> you're not doing with Laura what you did with us. She gets away with a whole lot more, you know. And it is a tendency. It's hard It's hard not to do that with your youngest one, especially when you know it's your last and you kind of want to milk it for all it's worth. But I prayed that a lot for her too because her next sibling was another one that, that really gave me fits. And she saw this relationship and she saw me struggling with her older sister and she saw what it was doing to me. And I saw her trying to make me happy and I thought, this is not good. And um, I think I even, by then, I think I understood things enough that I even said something to her about it verbally. With my oldest, I didn't have the presence of mind to even address it. (laughs) But by my youngest one, I did, and I think I even said something to her that I don't want you to feel responsible for trying to make things better. But I prayed a lot for her, that she would know she was a sinner and that she needed Jesus. And I think some kids, that's a good prayer for them, because some of them really are good kids. And they like to please, and they like to make mom and dad happy, and they do everything well. And school's easy for them. You know, we had one that school was a piece of cake. He hardly ever had to study. And then I had others that struggled, really struggled in school. And um, you know, life is easy for some kids, and it's hard for others. And those that it's easy for, they they may need you to pray that they would know that they're sinners. Did y'all have a, an established family night? We tried. <laughs> and we were um, successful part of the time, and we felt like failures most of the time. And part of it was having a lot of kids in a wide age spread. It was really hard to do a family night with a 2-year-old and a 12-year-old. I mean, you know, devotions were really a joke most of the time because it just, you know, it really didn't work. Now, the most success we had with devotions was when our last three were still at home, and they were all in high school. And that they were reasonably close to the same age and we didn't have that wide gap. And we found this great little devotional book that we just we read the quick little story in the morning. We were done in about two minutes and they were out the door. And I felt like we'd done something spiritual in some kind of spiritual deposit in their life. And we pray something in their lives, though. But it was really hard when we were at a wide age range because, you know, you've got the two-year-old banging on the high chair tray. They're not going to pay attention to a story. And if you're trying to read a story that the eight-year-old cares about, the 12-year-old is rolling his eyes going, this is boring. Yeah, it's a real difficult thing. So we, we did it, and the most successful family nights we had were when we played games, and we did fun things. And one of the things we did the most that everybody could participate was Family Olympics. And we just, Dennis would create these games, and they'd have to push a bean across the carpet with their nose to the finish line, or they'd have to carry something in a spoon. And, you know, the two-year-old or three-year-old, I can't remember how they, the youngest one was when we started doing that, but she was pretty young. But, um, I mean, she could do it, and she thought she was big stuff because she was doing something with the 13-, 14-year-old. On the family, or on the... Um family olympic thing uh-huh. we've done that before too and allowed some of the older ones to create their own game mm. uh-huh. and they think it's just great watching the whole family you know jump over their laundry baskets and crawl behind the couch okay. or whatever I mean that's been so rewarding for us not just us coming yeah. up with what we think is so cool to do for them but them and they're like okay here's my activity you know and they're so into that well they'll come up with better things than you will anyway I because parents like are brain, brain dead I mean all our creativity has been used up doing chore yeah, charts exactly. and trying to get them to do the other side so. <laughs> so absolutely, use your 10-year-old to come up with some ideas. That's a great idea. even
0: <laughs> As they get older, you can even give them a small budget and they're in charge of, this is how much you can spend. Mm-hmm. So they get to manage money for the whole family and mm-hmm.
1: stuff. Yeah. but It helps me to hear you talk about you know, that you had good intentions to do some of these things. Because one of the things that
0: I'm just struggling with so much is Keith and I set out all the time with great plans and flops. It just flops. We just carry it out for about a day. I mean, sometimes it's as pathetic as that. Like, you know, it's (laughs) like,
1: here's what we're doing. Here's the new thing. Well, one of the things I learned about myself from parenting is that I'm a great starter, but I'm not a good maintainer. And I didn't know that about myself. And there are certain things that I can finish and that I will make myself finish. But... I mean, that's why we had zillions of chore charts and zillions of knew this. This is the new plan for this year, and I'd I'd come up with it, and we'd last about three weeks, and that was about all I could do, and I was bored with it. Yeah, me too. So... I, I learned I learned a lot about myself. And Satan is so good, though, making you just feel like a failure as a mom on every count. Yeah. You know, being angry, well, yeah. being not a finisher, not being self-disciplined, you know, yeah. all these things. And he can use every Christian thing exactly. to beat you down, actually. It's yeah. all the Christianity to the point where you start saying, Christianity feels like a burden, not a not exactly. a freedom. Because all I
0: feel is we should be reading about, we should be doing all these spiritual things that I'm just glad to get, you know, dinner on the <laughs> table tonight. You know, and then yeah. I just want him to go
1: to bed at 6 o'clock is really what I would that's like. <laughs> you know, it
0: doesn't happen, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, bedtime, anyone? You know, but <laughs> just, you know, it's like oh, you just I, end up feeling like a exactly. swimming in your failures constantly.
1: Exactly. Well, and don't you think sometimes talking to other people kind of yes. makes you feel that way too? Oh, yes. yeah, some More women, yes. Had to oh, sure. Yes. Every day for a year, and you yes. go you oh. Yes. Well, I used to read the stories about Elizabeth Elliott's family and how her dad did the devotions and they'd sit and listen, all the things she learned, and I just felt like, how did you learn to do that? Because I'm pretty sure we didn't do that good of a job. And so as they do become adults, it's it's amazing what they do choose to internalize and um, that they did hear things. We were on the phone with our son this morning. He called because of, I don't know how many of you heard about this couple who lost their daughter last night, and... My heart's just been broken for them all day today. But anyway, we emailed it to our kids for our kids to pray. And our son Benjamin called, and he was crying when he called. He's never met them. He doesn't even know them. But he has three little girls and one on the way, and this was a 16-year-old girl. And he said, I don't know why this has gotten to me, but he said, it just makes me so sad. And so we talked to him for a while about praying for them and what we could do. And And then at the end of the conversation, Dennis said— well, why don't you pray for them? And it was the most wonderful thing in the world to listen to my son pray for this family that he doesn't even know. And just the things that he prayed, I I just thought, you know, those are the things we taught him. We taught him about God's sovereignty. We taught him that God is in control. We taught him all of those things that he prayed. He's still young, and he still has a lot of life left to learn. But, But to hear him pray the way he prayed for this family was a wonderful thing because I heard a lot of what we'd been saying to him for all of his life in his prayer. And and he was clearly expressing it as his own faith and his own trust in God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence and God's power and God's ability to comfort. All of those things came out in that prayer. And I thought, God, you're so good that you know this is one of the ones that I thought might be a juvenile delinquent, you know. He was plenty smart, but I didn't know how he was going to use his mind. And, you know, I hoped, but I also feared. I feared a lot. So I just want to encourage you all that, that there is great hope, that God will use all the good that you're doing to build into your kids' lives. And the wonderful thing about raising kids is our kids are so forgiving, and you're going to make a million mistakes, and you're going to get angry, and you're going to do the wrong thing, and, and you're going to overprotect, and you're going to under-regulate, and all of that stuff. You're going to make all those mistakes, but, but our children are so forgiving, and God is too, and God delights to bring good out of things that the enemy intends for evil, and he will. And so I'm encouraged, being on the other end, that parenting is worth it. It's such hard work, it's such exhausting work, and it's so overwhelming so much of the time, but God really is capable of bringing good out of a lot of mistakes, and we made plenty of them. So um, I just want you all to be encouraged that even though you do make mistakes, and you are making mistakes, and you will continue to make mistakes, God is sovereign, and, and He has great plans in mind for you and for your kids, things He wants to build into your lives, things He wants to build into your kids' lives, and He's in control.
0: That's Barbara Rainey, fielding the questions of moms. You know, one thing that strikes me as I listen to that, mentoring isn't rocket science, is it? A lot of what Barbara shared was just, well, this is what we did. It was giving ideas and suggesting solutions to problems. So if you're an older woman, think about this. Who could you share your experiences with? Is there a younger wife or mom in your church, perhaps, who might appreciate getting together every now and then with you? Or if you're a younger woman, maybe there's a godly woman you could reach out to, someone you could ask how she might handle whatever situation you're facing today. Well, remember, no matter your age, you're always an older woman to someone in your life, and you're likely a younger woman to someone else, too. One way Barbara mentors others is through the Everthine Home blog. We're all experiencing some challenging times these days, and Barbara's determined to help us navigate choppy waters by keeping our eyes fixed on our captain, Jesus Christ. You can subscribe to the blog at everthinehome.com. And while you're there, check out The Art of Parenting, a book by Dennis and Barbara Rainey. In it, they help parents aim their child's heart toward God. Again, that website is everthinehome.com. Next time, Barbara shares more practical ideas, this time creative ways we can celebrate Easter. I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks for listening. I'm Phil Krause inviting you back for Ever Thine Home with Barbara Rainey.